Chapter Three of With Fire and Sword. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Butters. With Fire and Sword by Samuel H. M. Byers. Chapter Three Ayuka, the fiercest battle of the war. Two hundred seventeen men out of four hundred eighty two of my regiment are shot. The awful rebel charge at Corinth. Moonlight on the battlefield. Bushels of arms and legs. Tombstones for fireplaces. One of Grant's mistakes. All that summer, after taking Corinth, we chased up and down the state of Mississippi, trying to get fair battle with the rebel army. At last the chance came, and for my regiment it was an awful one, the Battle of Iuka. The Battle of Iuka took place on the 19th of September, 1862. It was fought by a handful of the troops of General Rosecrans against half the army of General Price. Grant was only a few miles away, but although the commander-in-chief, he knew nothing of the hardest-fought battle of the Civil War until it was over. One morning before daylight, while camped in the woods near Jacinto, half expecting to be attacked, we heard that Price's army was in Iuka, some eighteen miles away, and that if we would hurry there and attack from one side, General Grant, with Ord's troops, would attack from another side. How eagerly the regiment made the forward march on that beautiful autumn day! The woods were in their fairest foliage, and it seemed too lovely a day for war and bloodshed. The bugles played occasionally as the men hurried along, but not a shot was fired. No noise like war fell on the soldiers' ears as they tramped over the beautiful country road toward the Tennessee River. They had time for reflection as they marched, and they knew now they were going to battle. There had been no time for letters or farewells, and each thought the other one, not himself, most likely to fall into the incoming engagement. There were only 482 of my little regiment now marching there, hoping, almost praying, the enemy might only wait. How little anyone dreamed that before the sun set, 217 of that little command would be stretched dead or dying among the autumn leaves. It was just two o'clock when the regiment ran onto the army of the enemy, lying in line right across the road close to Iuka. My own regiment was in the advance. Instantly, it too was in line of battle across the road, and in a few minutes, absolutely the fiercest little conflict of the war began. Our brigade was fearfully outnumbered. Rosecrans had 10,000 soldiers within five miles of the battlefield, yet let three or four small regiments and a battery do all the fighting. Ten miles away, in another direction, lay General Grant and General Ord, with many other thousands as silent as if paralyzed. An unlucky wind blew, they said, and the sound of our cannon, that was to have been the signal for them to attack also, was unheard by them. Charge after charge was made upon our little line, and the 11th Ohio Battery, which the regiment was protecting, was taken and retaken three times. There were no breastworks, yet that one little brigade of Hamilton's division stood there in the open, and repulsed assault after assault. It was the Iowa, the Missouri, 
and the Ohio boys against the boys of Alabama and Mississippi, and the grass and leaves were covered with the bodies in blue and gray. Not Balaclava nor the Alma saw such fighting. It was the duel to the death. For the hours the blue and gray stood within forty yards of each other and poured in sheets of musketry. Every horse of the battery at the left of my regiment was killed, and every gunner but one or two was shot and lying among the debris. No battery in the whole four years' war lost so many men in so short a time. Antietam, Gettysburg, the wilderness could show nothing like it. Only the setting sun put an end to what was part of the time a hand-to-hand -hand conflict. One daring rebel was shot down and bayoneted clear behind the line of Company B, where he had broken through to seize the flag of my regiment. That night the enemy slipped away, leaving hundreds and hundreds of his dead and wounded on the field. With a few lanterns, our men then went about and tried to gather up the wounded. The dead were left till morning. There were 782 Union men lying there in their blood that long night. 608 of them out of a single small brigade, while mothers and sisters at home were praying for the safety of these dear ones at the front, their spirits that night were leaving their torn bodies in the dark and ascending heavenward. Five of my eight messmates of the day before were shot. It was not a question of who was dead or wounded, but who was not. Fifteen officers of our little half-regiment were dead or wounded. The enemy lost more than 1,000 men in trying to destroy that single brigade and its Ohio battery. The burying party the next morning found 19 dead rebels lying together at one place. At another spot, 182 rebel corpses lay in a row covered by tarpaulins. The enemy had not had time to bury them. It was a principle among our generals that if a command fought well in a battle or got cut all to pieces, that was the particular command to be put at the very front of the next hard scrap. And so it was that within two weeks, my regiment was placed outside the breastworks at Corinth to wait and receive another awful assault. The night before the Battle of Corinth, the 5th Iowa Regiment lay across the Purdy Road. In the bright moonlight, I remained awake all night talking with a comrade who shared my blanket with me. Poor Jimmy King. He survived the war only to be murdered later on a plantation in Mississippi. As we lay there in the wagon road, the awful losses of my regiment in Iuka kept us thinking there in the moonlight of what would happen on the morrow. When morning came, the firing opened, and for all that day the battle raged fiercely at the left and center left, we getting the worst of it too. The rebels were charging works that they themselves had built when they held the town during Halleck's siege. General Hasselman and many other of our officers had fallen. Our own division, though fighting some, had lost but few men. That evening an order came for us, Hamilton's division, to assault the enemy's left flank at midnight. Before the hour came, however, the move was decided to be too dangerous, and we changed our position to one nearer the forts. All the night we lay there under the brightest moonlight I ever saw. Under the same quiet moonlight, and only six hundred yards away from us, also lay the victorious rebel army. They believed Corinth as good as taken, but they had only captured our outer line of forts. Yet it looked very bad for us. 
Every house in town was full of our wounded, and our dead lay everywhere. Once in the night, I slipped away from the bivouac and hurried to the old Tishomingo Hotel to see a lieutenant of my company who had been shot through the breast. Never will I forget the horrible scenes of that night. The town seemed full of the groans of dying men. In one large room of the Tishomingo house, surgeons worked all night, cutting off arms and legs. I could not help my friend. It was too late, for he was dying. Go back to the regiment, he said, smiling. All will be needed. It was a relief to me to get back into the moonlight and out of the horror. Yet out there lay thousands of others in line, only waiting the daylight to be also mangled and torn like these. The moon shone so brightly the men in the lines, tired though they were, could scarcely sleep. There the thousands lay, the blue and the gray, under the same peaceful moon, worshipping the same God, and each praying for dear ones, north and south, that they would never see again. God could not answer the prayers of the men in both armies that night. Had he done so, all would have been killed on the morrow. At early daybreak, I again went to see my lieutenant. As I entered the building, a cannonball from the enemy crashed through the house and killed four soldiers by the stairway. My friend, with many others, was being carried out to die elsewhere. It was soon full day. In one of the rooms I saw the floors, tables, and chairs covered with amputated limbs, some white and some broken and bleeding. There were simply bushels of them, and the floor was running blood. It was a strange, horrible sight, but it was war. Yes, it was hell. I hastened back to the lines. Nine o'clock came, and now we knew that the great assault was to be made. We looked for it against our own division as we lay in the grass waiting. Suddenly we heard something, almost like a distant whirlwind. My regiment rose to its feet, fired a few moments at scattering rebels in our front, and were amazed to see a great black column, ten thousand strong, moving like a mighty storm cloud out of the woods and attacking the forts and troops at our left. Instantly we changed directions a little, and without further firing witnessed one of the greatest assaults of any war. It was the storming of Fort Robinette. The cloud of rebels we had seen divided itself into three columns. These recklessly advanced on the forts, climbing over the fallen trees and bending their heads against the awful storm of grape and canister from all our cannon. A perfect blaze of close-range musketry, too, mowed them down like grass. Even a foe could feel pity to see brave men so cruelly slaughtered. When the assault had failed and the noise of battle was stilled, I hurried down in front of Robinette. My canteen was full of water, and I pressed it to the lips of many a dying enemy, enemy no longer. Our grape-shot had torn whole companies of men to pieces. They lay in heaps of dozens, even close up to the works. General Rogers, who had led a brigade into the hopeless pit, lay on his back, dead, with his flag in his hand. He was the fifth one to die carrying that flag. When I reached him, some cruel one had stripped him of his boots. Another had taken his fine gold watch. In this attack on Corinth, the brave Southerners lost 5,000 wounded, and we buried 1,423 of their dead on the battlefield. Our own loss had been 2,200 dead and wounded. That night I stood guard under an oak tree on the battlefield, 
among the unburied dead. Many of the wounded, even, had not yet been gathered up. The moon shone brightly as the night before, while thousands who had lain there under its peaceful rays before the battle were now again sleeping, but never to waken. Our regiment now pursued the flying rebels with great vigor. The quantities of broken batteries, wagons, tents and knapsacks, guns, etc., strewn along the roads behind them were immense. At the Ritchie River, the rebels were momentarily headed off by a division under Hurlbut that had hurried across from Bolivar. A seven hours battle was fought at the bridge, but the rebels got away in another direction. Possibly the best friend I had in the world, save my kin, was killed at that bridge. It was Lieutenant William Dodd, a classmate in school. His head was shot off by a cannonball, just as his regiment was charging at the bridge. The pursuit of the enemy was being pushed with vigor when the army was ordered to desist and return to camp. It was an astounding order, as it was in our power to destroy the defeated and flying columns. That order was one of the mistakes of Grant's earlier days as a commander. Indeed, we of the rank and file had little confidence in Grant in those days. We reflected that at Shiloh he was miles away from the battlefield at the critical moment. Sherman had saved the Union army from destruction there. At Iuka, Grant, though commander, did not even know a battle was going on. At Corinth, he was forty miles away. And now, when we had the enemy almost within our grasp, he suddenly called us back. Rosecrans protested. It was in vain. The order, more imperative than before, was repeated. It required months and great events to make Grant the hero of the army which he afterward became. This entry I found in my diary in one of those days. Our commander of the district is General U.S. Grant, who took Donelson. But aside from that one hour's fighting and a little fighting at Shiloh, the troops know little about him. Rosecrans is at present the hero of this army, and with him leading it, the boys would storm Hades. With the mercury at one hundred, the dust in the roads ankle-deep, and the whole atmosphere yellow and full of it, the regiments exhausted by the pursuit, and yet disgusted at our recall, slowly tramped their way back to Corinth. Now I visited my wounded companions in the hospital. On inquiry for certain ones, I learned that they were dead and lying out in the improvised graveyard nearby. For some reason, the dead at Hatchie Bridge were not buried. A week after the battle, my brother rode by there on a cavalry expedition and made the horrible discovery that hogs were eating up the bodies of our dead heroes. That, too, was war. We now camped on the edge of the town and went on building still other and greater forts. Many of the soldiers made huts for themselves. It was getting cooler now, and little fireplaces were built in the huts and tents. Brick was scarce, and in a few instances, the men used the stone slabs from a graveyard close at hand. It seemed vandalism, but the dead did not need them, and the living did. End of chapter 3 Recording by Jennifer Butters